1: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keane and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts, and always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. To talk about the specific sectors and some of the rolling recessions. One of the recessions has been in the logistics area and the shipping area, uh, and I do Before uh, we get to Steve Rusciuto of Mizuho here, I do want to just touch base with uh, Lee Klaskow, Senior Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Lee, the reason why uh, you're really the person who I want to speak to is to understand how much we could be dealing with potential supply chain disruptions again because of what we're seeing in the Red Sea.
2: Yeah, I don't think these are going to be a major dislocation. I think it's going to be more or less a hiccup, if you will. But the net effect is that uh, freight rates are rising. Uh, They're actually up uh, about 9% sequentially. A lot of that increase is being driven by uh, freight headed from... Uh, Singapore, I'm sorry, from uh, China to, to Europe, uh, that's been uh, up pretty significantly, up around 15, 16% uh, over the last week. And it's up around 50% since uh, bottoming in October. Uh, but it also just need to remind people that uh, in, in 2021, to ship a container used to cost $14,000. That was a peak. Today, it's around uh, you know $1,400. So uh, rates are down significantly, but we are seeing a, a bounce And, you know, what's going on in the Red Sea, Uh, I'm I'm guessing that it's not going to be long term in nature and there's going to be a resolution uh, in the coming months.
3: Mm -hmm. And Lee, with that in mind, just quickly here, uh, if you anticipate a resolution coming uh, in fairly short order, does this ever touch the consumer, if at all?
2: A- absolutely, because if shippers are paying higher rates, they're going to try to push that cost onto, onto the consumer. But remember, there's a lot of T-shirts that go into a container. So we're talking about a half a penny more uh, in terms of shipping costs uh, to, to ship certain items. Obviously, larger items, uh, the, the impacts um, uh, greater. But, you know, a lot of stuff that goes on the ocean are usually uh, lower value stuff where high value stuff is usually shipped uh, via air freight.
1: Lee Clasco of Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you so much for being with us. Just uh, short of a visit. I do want to get to the economic data uh, that we just got, since it is fascinating to be. Steve Rusciuto here with us, chief economist at Mizuho Securities. And I want to start there. Initial jobless claims came in below expectations. It's actually a positive downside surprise. And yet you're seeing a real rally in the two-year, which makes me think that the Philadelphia outlook uh, for manufacturing is of concern. Is that right?
4: Well, I think you have this this environment where you have people like you mentioned uh, Harker, talking about you know the grassroots kind of sentiment that they're getting in terms of information from companies that tell them that there's a problem uh, in the underlying uh, economic fabric. But you're not seeing it in the broader macro perspective. I think this gets to what was uh, Kitty was talking about in terms of rolling sector recessions. But I think it also gets to the fact that expectations are really an issue because when I sit down and I talk to CFOs and I talk to CEOs of different companies in different industries, I get the same message over and over again, which is, you know, the economy's not gonna do well. We're gonna go into a recession, but my business is doing really well. And, And I kind of like, you know, time out, guys. Everybody tells me exactly the same thing. So if you're all telling me your business is doing well, but you all think the world isn't going to do well, then maybe you've got a disconnect in terms of the underlying realities. And this is why you see the continuing claims numbers doing what they're doing. They're moving lower. So you also see this in terms of the employment numbers. Everyone says, oh, we're laying off workers. But then you go back and look at their actual job counts, and you see that they've repositioned their workers into different parts of their business.
1: So put this together. Help us understand what's actually going on. Is this basically people are feeling bad because they feel like they should feel bad and that actually things are very good and that the uh, risk is actually to an acceleration in the economy that people aren't expecting.
4: Well, I think the risk is the recession that the market is expecting doesn't happen. You look at things like the blue chip average, right? The blue chip average has first half growth at 0.5%. Now, 0.5% is the closest you're going to get the blue chip numbers to ever saying negative GDP before you actually print negative GDP. So recession is priced into the structure. If you don't get recession, you're going to have to have a readjustment. This is exactly what happened after the regional bank situation. Remember, everyone forecasted a recession. It didn't happen. Then we had that major summer sell-off. I'm not saying we're going to get as much of a summer sell-off as we got this time through, but there certainly needs to be a correction in some of these markets to reflect the fact that this economy is not rolling over and playing dead, that expectations are different than the reality. And eventually expectations have to adjust to reality because reality is what it is. It's the reality.
3: Well, just to meditate a little bit on the evolution of the recession calls. Remember, 2023, it was definitely going to happen. And then everyone started pushing out the recession calls and then basically abandoning them altogether. There's actually a story on the terminal right now. Citigroup, Deutsche Bank, Wells Fargo, some of the last remaining on the street who are still calling for a recession. But just this- to that idea that maybe rolling recessions are what we're seeing at the sector level—is that the way we should be thinking about this economy, or are we smooth sailing from here?
4: I think the economy is fundamentally healthy. Um, I think we've discovered that you know the Fed is uncomfortable with a five percent ten-year note. Um, I think the Fed is somewhat equally uncomfortable with a ten-year note moving below four percent the way it is. But you have to keep in mind the fair value trading range on the ten-year note, if you assume a two percent. Target um, is basically three and three quarters to four and a quarter. We're in the bottom half of that range, and no one's going to be selling this market going into the end of the year. There is zero sellers out there, and the bulls are still in favor. So what you're seeing happening on the day like today, where the claims numbers come in lower, continuing claims come in lower, the GDP number probably went down. I don't have the details, but I'm assuming because of inventory. Yep. Okay, so those are things that tell you better growth going forward. And then we latch on to the one thing here that we can say, oh, gee, it's time to be bullish again. We'll push, and I think by the end of the day, we'll realize. It wasn't worth pushing.
3: So should we be just applauding the Fed right now? Because you think about what we've seen so far. We've seen inflation come down from once-in-a-generation highs. The unemployment rate is still under 4%. Uh, and, I mean, everyone seems to be left and right abandoning their recession calls. Have we? Is it safe to say that the plane has just about landed here, that they actually have pulled it off?
4: Well, the, I mean, the, the plane was never going to go have a recession. We were never going to have a hard landing. The, the only way you could have gotten a hard landing is if the equity market corrected to earnings numbers. Numbers. And then you had companies being forced to really lay off workers to drive up margins. That never happened because the Fed kept on telling you we're going to cut rates. So because the Fed kept on telling you we're never going to we're going to cut rates, you never had that adjustment take place. So the, the the adjustment in terms of the macroeconomic story is clearly why the Fed did do that through forward guidance. In terms of whether or not they're going to achieve the inflation numbers, that's still open. We're looking at inflation numbers that are closer to three percent than two percent. Now, on the average inflation target. And given the concept of this Fed in terms of the inflation concept, not wanting to get back to the zero bound at any particular point in time in the future, they're willing to accept 3%. The problem is at 3%, the 10-year note is much too expensive. Mm. And if the 10-year note is much too expensive, then the equity market is much too expensive. So the reality is the Fed may get us to a hotter landing. But the markets have to adjust to that, and they haven't.
1: That's the reason why I was just going to ask you, why are you bearish if you see the economy doing better than expected and no recession? Is this because you do think that there is this inflationary underlying pressure that people are discounting and that there's going to be a meaningful sell-off in bonds as people understand that?
4: Well, you, you have to keep in mind there is a global deflationary force, which is real incredible by the same token there is a domestic cyclical inflationary force that's real incredible and it's been a battle between the two of them markets never took on board the 9% spike in inflation we never took that on board so the fact that we've come down to these levels which are in the fair value range of 2 to 3% 2% we have to ask ourselves a question is it 2 or is it 3 this is the question we haven't answered yet and that's the critical question and that determines whether or not where you want to be in the bond market and to me it also suggests that if this federal reserve were to do something like take an insurance rate cut, because you mm-hmm. hear that conversation all the time. Uh, you, you saw that in 2018. 2000, you saw that during the, the Greenspan soft landing in the, in the mid-1990s. They took these insurance rate cuts. The question was that these particular times and those particular times was that inflation hadn't spiked, and we didn't have the cyclical tightness that we have. Today, we do. And in 2018 and 2019, we had a disruption in financial markets. We have no disruption in financial markets. I think if the Fed were to take insurance rate cuts right now, the dollar would collapse. If the dollar would collapse, you then get into a situation where the global deflationary story no longer helps out the inflationary numbers, because we've been importing global deflation. But if the dollar collapses, we no longer import global deflation. And at that point in time, goods prices no longer go down. If goods prices no longer go down, then service prices are fully reflected in inflation. And that becomes the rub for the Fed. That's why they're in this difficult balancing act of pushing back when things get too aggressive. And and when things go too far the other way, they have to push the other way. They're trying to fine tune this thing. Um, And so far, they've been able to pull it off because the market gives them credibility. You have to ask yourself a question. How many times can you get that lucky?
3: Mm.
1: Steve Rusciuto, thank you so much. You'll have to come back on in the new year and tell us whether uh, it's working or not. Steve Rusciuto there of Mizuho.
0: (laughs)
5: top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: Stuart Kaiser, head of U.S. equity strategy, trading strategy at Citigroup, joining us now. Stuart, I want to start there. Do you sort of worry that you're not getting bullish enough because the rest of the street's coming to you?
6: Um, I, it's a good question. I mean, I'm definitely feeling more bullish post-Fed, I think, than we were going into the Fed. I mean, As you know, we've been kind of bullish, you know, the last few months, expected to rally into year-end. The Fed feels like they've extended that window a little bit, um, just in the sense that they're being more respectful of the dual mandate and probably a little bit, you know, quicker to come to the rescue, so to speak, if we do see weakness in the growth data. So, you know, I, I think we're probably, I don't know if we're more bullish, but I think the bullishness is probably has a, has a wider window to, uh, to perform in uh, going into 2024.
1: Well, the reason why I ask that is because if we're at 4,800, essentially you're not talking about- about that big of a game through year end, and this comes as you're expecting the economic data to come in strong and to still show this disinflationary trend. So, what would it take for you to uh, boost that year end target?
6: <laughs> well, I'd have to call up Scott and ask him to do that for us. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think, look, from my perspective, we we still do have a, a modest recession in the middle of the year from our U.S. economists. So, I, I think really the question here is, does that recession call continue to get pushed out as it did through much of 2023? And and if that happens, and if the Fed is willing to do quote unquote insurance cuts, then you know, then the markets are going to be going to be much higher by year end. And I really think that that's one of the big topics next year is A, recession, do we get it or not? And B, kind of what is the calculus for the Fed? If you'd asked me a couple weeks ago, I, I would have said the Fed might be too slow to react because they want to loosen up the economy. After the December FOMC, it seems like they're not going to be too slow to react. And, and that might just add a little bit of juice to your point as we get into next year.
3: Well, on the Fed's reaction function, are you basically saying that the Fed put is back or is coming back?
6: I mean, that, that, that would be an initial takeaway from the December FOMC. I, I think my view, if you had asked me in November, would have been, you know, they're not going to hike unless inflation hooks higher, and they're probably not going to cut unless we see meaningful weakness in the labor side of the economy. The December FOMC suggested, you know, no, maybe there is this third option where they could actually be doing quote-unquote insurance cuts. And if they do that, I think that's extremely bullish uh, for equities. I mean, if they're cutting in, in, in an environment, let's say, where we're printing 150K jobs, then, you know, equities are going higher.
3: Well, something that we've been tussling with is how much rate cuts are actually going to matter. You think about 500 basis points of hikes, uh, maybe causing a little bit of indigestion in the stock market at one point. Not at all this year. We did have some turbulence over the summer. And then you think about the economy overall. Rate cuts. Does the why for why we're getting rate cuts actually matter when it comes to this equity rally?
6: I, I think it does, 100. You know, if they're cutting because they're seeing real weakness in the labor side of the economy, you know that that's much different than if if growth is sort of sideways, inflation's easing, and they decide, hey, we're too restrictive. So I think I think the why matters, matters significantly, at least in my view.
1: At this point, though, there is a question about earnings, and I know that you say bad news <laughs> is bad news and good news is good news. <laughs> Have we really gotten such good news on the earnings front? I'm going to be speaking with Emily Rowland later this morning, and she basically pointed out that year-on-year year, S&P 500 earnings barely grew, 0.6%, and a lot of the gains that we've seen are pricing in next-year gains that are expected to be robust. Doesn't that concern you?
6: Uh, you know, it, it does a bit. I would say I, I think year-on-year year we're, tra- we're, we're tracking down about 2% for S&P. You know, but if you, had asked, if you had asked us last December what is the risk to S&P earnings, people were throwing around – 200 numbers or sub 200 numbers. So, you know, the year on year growth isn't great, but the the way the data printed relative to expectations has been, you know, very, very, very positive. So I think I think that that's how I view earnings this year is we came into the year with people throwing around 185 to $200 bear, bear market type, you know, situations on EPS. We're now going to print something that looks more like 220. Um, Scott on, at Citi is at 245 for next year, which is, you know, going to give you pretty close to double digit EPS growth in 2024. So I, not too worried. I think I, if I had not described 2023, better than feared. And then 2024, it looks like hopefully we're going to get some actual, not only EPS growth, but a broadening out of EPS growth to a a larger number of sectors, which we do think is also important.
1: Exactly where I was going to go. We had Margie Patel on earlier and saying, "Eh, maybe that story is a little overplayed. Other people still sticking with what's worked, including big tech. You're kind of taking a little bit of a different tone.
6: Look, I, we, we, we thought big tech and growth was gonna work into your end. And then as you got into 2024, you needed to kind of do a little bit of a, a reevaluation of things. And I, next year, if you do get broader earnings growth after a year in which you had very narrow, large cap leadership, I think there's a fair argument to say that, you know, S&P equal weight, for instance, relative to S&P cap weight would make a lot of sense. What we've seen this month is Russell 2000 is massively outperformed. So I think what folks are saying is, you know growth, growth may be better than we expected. The Fed actually may cut <laughs> You know, with, without a recession, and I've got a lot of stocks um, at the smaller size of the cap spectrum that have meaningfully lagged. So I think that theme theme has legs. I do think. Russell 2000, we're probably a little less comfortable with just from a a risk-reward perspective, but definitely S&P equal weight relative to cap weight is something that we think think makes a lot of sense into early next year.
3: So we're talking about some big, longer-term themes here, of course, what the uh, risks look like in 2024 and the opportunities. Let's talk about 2.30 p.m. (laughs) yesterday. Of course, that uh, sudden plunge that we saw in the S&P 500, a lot of people pointing to zero-day options and the heavy put volume that we saw there. What do you make of that argument?
6: Uh, You know, our view is that the zero-day options is probably less Likely to have, have have caused that yesterday. Just uh, talking to the clients that we talked to on a regular basis, everybody was searching. You know, some people said, "Oh, it must be the twenty-year bond auction." Oh, maybe it's just low vol- low volumes. You know, kind of late in the month. You know, people throw zero-date options out there. I think is a as a reason if they don't have another reason. Um, it's, it's an easy kind of fallback reason. So it's always possible that in a low-volume day, a small amount of flows can kind of get you going. And it does feel like the markets were in now. Once a direction is determined, we're just going to kind of go that way because there's not a lot of volume to push it back. So, um, you know, we're not generally in the camp of blaming zero date for, for these type of things. Um, it, could it be one of a, a few things that got listed? You know, some people said, oh, a delayed reaction to FedEx numbers. Some people said the 20-year bond auction. You know, other people said zero date options. It's uh, This is just one of those, I think, late in the year, low volume, you know, kind of we've rallied a lot. Take some risk off the table for I like the
3: theory that it was a delayed reaction to FedEx because that would be quite a delayed I, well reaction you know,
6: if don 't have an answer I mean people were I think people were groping yesterday yeah. and and you just kind of you're looking for anything what has been bad news theoretically that we 've received in the last couple of days that, that could have done it I think the most notable thing which you mentioned earlier is equities moved but other assets didn 't and I, I think that 's why people were a little bit confused by it um, it, it clearly didn 't come from the bond side of the ledger uh, some folks said there were just some you know equity sell programs going through the system and and that might just be a risk reduction into year end. Uh, last year, we kind of had this a little bit too, though. We kind of rallied the first two or three weeks of December, and then the last two weeks of December last year were a little wonky. So maybe we're having that again.
1: So were you following Scott's advice and just buying the dip? Were you out there yesterday just scooping <laughs> stuff up getting really excited?
6: <laughs> I, was, I was trying to figure out what was happening. Um, I, I think the, the buy the dip stuff makes sense, I, I think, if you, if you, you know, believe all the narrative we've had here, right? Um, so, well,
1: but this is my issue. If you always buy the dips, there will not be dips. <laughs> So is that what we're expecting? All the volatility that people are talking about next year, there's a high risk of it not happening because everyone's going to buy into any kind of volatility that we see.
6: You know, it's possible there's still a lot of cash on the sidelines. You know, if you're a retail investor who's sitting in money market and you, you get told rates are going lower, you just missed... a a 20% rally in the S&P and a 50% rally in NASDAQ. And if you believe we're not going into a recession, I think there is the potential for money to start to bleed into the market, to your point, and kind of, you know, a retail put alongside the Fed put, maybe, you know, kind of really improves your risk reward. But to me, it all boils down to labor market data. Labor market data holds in, you just want to continue to run long equity risk. If you see weakness in that part of the economy, you need to be, excuse me, you need to be really, really cautious about how you manage things.
1: Stuart Kaiser, thank you so much for being with us. Joining us now, I'm so pleased to say, is Susan Thornton, senior fellow at uh, the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale. Susan, I just want to get your sense of how much of a, a sort of increased in a threat the NBC report on what Xi Jinping told President Biden really was.
7: Yeah, thanks very much. I think this is really a tempest in a teapot. The things that Xi Jinping said on Taiwan and the meeting with Biden are absolutely not new. The Chinese have repeated at almost every occasion that uh, you know Taiwan will be reunified at some point. So I don't think anything that the Chinese would have said on this issue would be considered new by people who watch this issue. Maybe by people who don't watch this issue, they would have been surprised. Uh, But I do think the Chinese are kind of reflecting some concern that U.S. policy is shifting toward a support for kind of a kind of permanent separation with Taiwan. And that would be um, maybe something that would be causing them a little bit of alarm and may have added some oomph to this kind of statement about Taiwan will be reunified.
1: They added a lot of oomph this morning when you talk about the potential uh, prohibition of exports of certain rare earth metals that are really crucial at a lot of electric vehicles. And this comes as there are reports that the administration in the United States is thinking about possibly increasing the tariffs on imports of certain goods having to do with electric vehicles from China. Is this a really material increase in the tit for tat, the trade
7: war that we saw really heat up a couple of years ago with China and the U.S.? Well, you know, the Chinese have already announced um, in a couple of other occasions some uh, selected restrictions on exports of rare earths, you know, trying to show that they have cards that they can play, too, in this tit-for-tat trade war. I think what we're seeing from the Biden administration is a desire to kind of adjust some of the tariffs uh, that the Trump administration had imposed on China, in which the Biden administration left on. So, uh you know, EVs are a particular concern because of the desire to try to ramp up manufacturing here in the U.S. Um, of course, they're also a big concern in Europe. and so I think that's what we're looking at. Certainly, this is a hugely successful sector for China, so they don't want to see this tariff imposition happen. I think probably they're resigned to it at this point, and this is probably, you know just a, a lot more signaling than something that's unexpected. So resigned to
3: tariffs, but what about when it comes to sanctions? I mean, to go back to what Senator Lindsey Graham said, saying that uh, he is intent on drafting pre-invasion sanctions from hell to impose on China if they take action to seize Taiwan. How would those sanctions be received and would that actually deter China in any fashion?
7: Yeah, I think it's really important that we sort of try to separate the Taiwan issues from the trade war issues. Because they are very different, and people have, you know, a tendency to try to uh, lump all these things together, especially up on Capitol Hill. Um, you know the the issues around trying to draft, you know, pre-invasion sanctions um, have been talked about up on Capitol Hill for a while. Uh, you know, it didn't work with Russia, um, and those sanctions were probably uh, much more dramatic than anything that could be imposed on China in terms of trying to get the rest of the countries in the world to go along with it. Of course, sanctions regime only works to the extent that you can get other countries to also join in. So I think um, this is an effort by you know, people to try to show the Chinese that we really don't want them to do this. But again, um, you know, the summit was very successful, the summit in San Francisco between President Biden and President Xi in trying to tamp down this issue. And it seems now like there's a desire in some Uh, quarters to try to ramp it up again. And I think that's unfortunate. I mean, we really do need to see some stability on this issue going into what's going to be a pretty tumultuous year in U.S.-China relations, I think.
3: Well, Susan, to that point, of course, uh, the APEC summit, it was perceived as going well. And I think that's why uh, part of the reason why there was surprise to see this report from NBC yesterday when it comes to uh, China's intentions with Taiwan. But, I mean, you made the great point that this isn't necessarily new rhetoric uh, from China when it comes
7: to Taiwan. Absolutely. I think um, the summit actually on Taiwan, my understanding is the two leaders didn't really spend a lot of time on that issue and that there was a tacit agreement to try to work to manage this difficult issue. You know, we have the Taiwan election coming up on January 13th, that's going to pose you know, tensions and some difficulties in the relationship. There'll be an inauguration in May, and there's always a lot of uh, back and forth between the US and China on how these issues will be handled. And I think what we were trying to uh, get from the summit was that these issues will be handled you know, carefully and that was the message that was trying to be conveyed. And, and now we've sort of got back to this um, increased sort of hype around a possible military action, which, which I agree with Michael Hurst and I don't think is imminent.
1: Given the fact that we are dealing with a very political year heading into the election at the end of the year, how can there be any kind of diplomatic uh, discussions between China and the U.S. with any conviction if it is not clear who is going to be in the White House come 2025?
7: Well, this is an issue for diplomats working on relationships with pretty much every country in the world right now. I mean, all countries are kind of looking at our political situation and wondering what's going to happen. And and wondering what kind of commitments they can make with us in the coming year. So it is difficult and, and you know, probably especially difficult with China. The only thing I would say about uh, the U.S.-China relationship is that it's, it's less likely probably to turn on a dime with the, uh, you know, accession of a Republican president, be it Trump or anybody else, because I think there is this kind of bipartisan, Uh, approach to China, which is quite, um, you know, hawkish at the moment and probably won't change no matter who comes into the White House. And I think the Chinese do know that. So they are so they are looking at, you know, the coming year and then the years after at sort of how to manage what's going to be a pretty difficult time, I think.
3: Well, Susan, you bring up a question that I think about all the time when it comes to U.S.-China relations. A lot of these issues go back years and years. They outlast any one administration. And like you mentioned, being hawkish on China is very bipartisan at the moment. And with that in mind, how much does it truly matter? How consequential is it who is actually in the Oval Office?
7: Um, Yeah. Well, you mentioned that uh, being hawkish on China is bipartisan now. I mean, I think it actually goes a long way back. And almost every issue we have today with China has been around for decades, you know, especially on Taiwan. Uh, If you go back and look at I've been looking at historical records lately from the um, Carter administration. And, you know, every single issue was was talked about at the time of normalization between the U.S. and China in 1979. So uh, we're 45 years on from that. And I think it, um, you know, it's just going to be two big countries, huge economies, important players in the world. And it's just going to be so uh, difficult to figure out how to manage all of these issues. I think. Um, The most important thing is that uh, whoever's in the White House should be expressing confidence about the future of the United States and our our ability to be resilient and, uh, you know, maintain our competitive edge. I think that's the most important thing. Susan Thornton
1: of the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale University. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The
1: countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th the media industry is consolidating we late yesterday learned that warner brothers and paramount held talks about a possible merger a deal putting potentially uh, the studios together and putting hbo and cbs under one roof according to people familiar with the matter robert fishman senior research analyst at moffitt nathanson writing this morning we hesitate to see the upside in any transaction for the paramount company as a whole especially at its current premium valuation given the pressure on the linear tv business it's a great place to start and robert i'm so pleased to say is joining us now to discuss. Robert, that is my key question. What is the advantage to tying up CNN and CBS?
8: Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, I think the answer to the question right now is the desperate times in media landscape. And the companies are facing significant challenges from a linear TV perspective, given the increasing rates of cord cutting, Uh, linear advertising we think is in secular declines right now. So all these companies are looking to really just cut back and back to your conversation earlier, try to figure out how to get to this other side of the streaming pivot that they're all making. But it's a really challenging time right now.
1: So do you think that this is a viable deal or do you think that this is just basically the CEOs throwing in the towel and saying, we'll talk to whoever we can to try to understand what could potentially work?
8: I think every company is really trying to figure it out right now. And I do think that uh, combinations are, are likely to happen. Do I think that anything is gonna happen in the very near term? We, we have our skepticism just because of the regulatory landscape that, that was just referenced.
3: And something that I've been wondering about thinking about this potential combination is how Warner Brothers would actually pay for this. Because as I understand it, uh, they have a pretty hefty debt load. You think back to uh, that massive merger between Discovery and Warner Media from 2021. How would they actually fund this acquisition if it happens?
8: Yeah, we're still waiting to, to learn more details in terms of the actual terms and, and how it would be structured. I mean, clearly that they would likely look for a, a, some sort of stock component, if not a, a significant stake um, in, in the combined company. So we, we still need to figure out the exact combination. But, but to your point, um, all of these companies are in a challenged position right now because of the debt loads that they have. And that has limited the flexibility that these companies have as they're coming through uh, the streaming pivot that they're looking to make and trying to get to the other side with the pressures of the linear ecosystem going against them.
3: And if I were in the C-suite at Netflix or say at Apple's streaming, should I be worried right now? Not particularly just about this potential tie up, but potential consolidation to come?
8: Well, from the digital company's perspective, um, in terms of streaming specifically, I mean, clearly, I'd flip the question around, and I'd say the media companies should continue to be worried to see how much bigger and stronger the digital companies are getting in streaming, um, especially with you know, public reports that Amazon continues to be looking to, to go more in sports. And I think the, the whole sports angle here is a really interesting angle, because um what Warner Brothers Discovery does not have today is a broadcast network, and what we know that they're looking to do, a big deal coming up in 2024, is going to be the NBA renewal. So sports, I think, is, is a critical piece to all of this potential consolidation question and how that plays out and who owns what assets will be uh, have a significant impact on on the future of the sports landscape as well that's exactly where i was going
1: to go especially with cbs i wonder how much that's part of this this idea of trying to get in especially before amazon as they bid on this if amazon or one of the other streaming networks were to get a hold of some of the uh, rights to the sports teams or football in particular would that be the death knell for the cable channels
8: well to some degree it's already happening Um, Amazon does have their Thursday night package, and they've they've succeeded um, so far this season. Uh, We've seen real momentum there in terms of viewership. So, yes, I mean, this is the trend for sports. Uh, Sports is is going over the top. Clearly, ESPN remains the uh, pivotal piece to to the sports ecosystem, and there's been lots of discussion in terms of the the timing of when they're going to take their flagship network over the top as well. But all of these sports rights are are a critical piece again um, to the, the future of, of the media landscape and to the to the whole sports ecosystem. And the digital players play a, a critical piece as part of that as well.
1: I have to say, as you're talking, Robert, it does not sound very optimistic for a lot of these streaming channels that are not Amazon or that are not Netflix. And I'm wondering if the best game plan, according to you, is just to basically put all of the, uh, the sort of repertoire, all the different shows together, give it as a streaming offer that is only one stream, it's a bundled stream, and just offering it like that, rather than trying to compete in any kind of material way with the content, as
8: well as just the pocketbook of some of these other players. I mean, we do think that re-aggregation on the streaming side is inevitable. It will likely take some time to play out, but this potential consolidation or, or whatever permutation you want to throw out there um, is all one step closer to, to that end goal.
3: And let's talk a little bit more about Paramount specifically, because it was interesting to see this news yesterday about uh, Warner Brothers. When you think about what else we've heard and learned about Paramount this week, of course, uh, holding talks once again about a sale of the black entertainment television network, for example. Uh, We'll see if any buyers emerge there. Can Paramount stand alone as a standalone company? If it's not Warner Brothers, for example, do they need to be acquired by someone else at this point?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think the challenges at hand are real and growing. Um, we hosted a conference a couple weeks ago now in terms of the future of the impact of charter deal, the, the Disney charter deal on the rest of the ecosystem. And we believe, and it's been reported that uh charter deal with Paramount is coming up. But all future renewals for Paramount, given what we say, um, essentially back to sports, that the fact that they're leaking all of their premium sports rights, including the NFL over the top, is going to be a significant challenge um, going forward for Paramount. And we think that the renewals what will come under pressure because of that. and that will be another leg as far as what, what some of the risks are facing this company. Uh, coming back to the advertising story, it, it's it's a real difficult time right now and it's pretty clear to us that television is in secular decline in terms of advertising and that's going to put another significant challenge um, ahead given how high margin these dollars are and the exposure that uh, the TV networks, TV media business is for Paramount um, is generating essentially all of their profit today.
3: And of course, the talks between Warner Brothers and Paramount, are preliminary, according to people familiar, may not lead to an agreement, but let's say that it did, that these two companies did combine. On the surface level, there's a lot of overlap between these two companies. What could that potentially mean for restructuring and layoffs, for example?
8: I mean, there would clearly be significant cost synergies involved in the combination of these companies. Uh, But in the report we we published this morning, we alluded to the fact uh, from an overlap perspective that the cable network business would be something with with high concentration. So that's clearly something from a regulatory standpoint that we would imagine um, is reviewed at the very least, Um, again, in this uh, potential speculative type of of, uh, combination. And then you you have to question what ends up with, with the two different studios. Um, whether or not uh, Warner Brothers Discovery would, would, would be forced or, or even opportunistically look to uh, get rid of the, the Paramount studio as well.
1: Robert Fishman of Buffett-Nathanson, thank you so much for being with us. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg.
5: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.